So I want to contrast two James today. The first is James Cameron, the second highest earning film director, notably of Terminator, Titanic, and Avatar. This James is famous for his films, and he's famous for being demanding and demeaning. He said to his fourth wife, Linda Hamilton, anybody can be a father or a husband. There are only five people in the world who can do what I do, and I'm going for that. Now, I hope he's changed since he made that regrettable statement. He has been married to his fifth wife for 20 years, so I hope he's changed. But the point is not to point finger. Clearly, we're all imperfect people. But I will say not all imperfect people consider themselves to be exceptionally wise and then go fully embrace such obvious folly as that. The second James is a brother of Jesus who, in his letter, asked the important question, who is wise and understanding among you? James was raised on Proverbs. He was immersed in Old Testament biblical wisdom. Little did he know that he was growing up with wisdom personified in his brother Jesus. As a young adult, James did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but that would change. James would become one of the witnesses to the resurrected Christ. And Paul wrote that Jesus revealed himself to many people, and he specifically mentions James as if this was a special one-to-one experience. And I could easily imagine Jesus doing that for his brother. And James would go on to become a leader in the early church. He was pastor of the church at Jerusalem for about 20 years. He was killed for his faith not long after he wrote the book we call James. And at one point in his ministry, there was a disagreement among Christian leaders. And some people thought that you had to essentially become Jewish before you could become a Christian. It was a terrible idea. Paul wrote extensively about this in his letter to the Galatians. And in Acts chapter 15, there was this meeting in Jerusalem where leaders gathered to discuss the issue. Peter, Barnabas, Paul, all these leaders told about their experiences with Gentiles coming to Christ, non-Jews, talked about their convictions. They made their case that it would betray the gospel to add conditions to it. And when they finished, James, who evidently was the chair of this meeting, spoke up. And he quoted the Old Testament. He related to Old Testament to what they were seeing happen now. The promises were being fulfilled. And then he concluded, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. All this was tied to Old Testament laws. And so his point was, don't add to the gospel. Don't put stumbling blocks in the way of non-Jews who want to come to Christ But at the same time, make sure that these non-Jews who are coming to Christ don't unnecessarily put stumbling blocks in the way of Jews who might still come to Christ. And what we see in this is that James had a reputation for wisdom and for leadership and peacemaking. In other words, he lived what he taught in his letter. And so what he lived and taught was the wisdom of Proverbs, Old Testament wisdom, and the wisdom of Jesus, which are the same thing. Let's go to James chapter 3 and see what this wisdom is and what it isn't. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. Where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace 
raise a harvest of righteousness. So to get the feel for this passage, imagine, it's not going to be hard to imagine because you're actually doing this, imagine you're sitting in a room full of various people, all kinds of folks, and then James walks to the front of the room and asks, who is wise and understanding among you? And various looks come across the faces of the crowd, hard to tell what they mean, so think about maybe we can read minds, and over here someone's Someone's thinking, well, of course I'm wise and understanding. Everyone knows it. Over here, people don't acknowledge it, but I'm wise. I'm just not appreciated. Over here, I've studied theology. I know the Bible inside and out. Of course, me. One person very awkwardly raises their hand and realizes he wasn't really asking you to respond like that. So imagine James asks it again, but this time without pausing, he throws down the preemptive challenge. Who is wise and understanding among you? Well, then let him show it by his good life, by the deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. And so wisdom seen in a good life, humility expressed in actions. Maybe people are thinking, well, that seems like a different question. There's wisdom and then there's actions but is it really a different question don't do it now but you can google smart people who are not good people and I wouldn't do it to gloat or to judge but it's fascinating who pops up on the other hand Jesus is both the smartest person who's ever lived and the best person who's ever lived he's wisdom and goodness personified when I was younger I wanted to be smart mostly wanted to look smart I especially never wanted to look foolish so I would maneuver to make sure I didn't look stupid in situations. Didn't work. And as I get older, I'd like to be good, especially goodness expressed in kindness. Biblically, there's no growth in wisdom if there's no growth in goodness. Goodness, it shows up in actions. Now, it's important to know that James is not opposed to knowledge. He's not opposed to truth. He was an expert in the Old Testament. His letter is full of it. He was an expert in the teachings of Jesus. And this took effort and it took intelligence. You need true information about God, theology, in order to live a godly life. But information that does not make its way into application is not biblical wisdom. Truth and practice is wisdom. Today, you saw on the slide, maybe before the service started, Aaron Lewis begins a four-week class on theology. It's super important that we know truth about God. And we're leaning into more precise theological instruction as a church because it's such a pressing and important need. We need to know the truth. Truth has become relativized, and so people are trying to build their lives on sand. It's just not working. And we have a solid foundation in our lives, in the Bible, for our lives in the Bible. Truth has been revealed to us. But keep this in mind. There are two good reasons to learn theology. One, to love God. Two, to love people. And I've known people who study theology in order to be impressive or to win debates or out of mere curiosity, a lot of other not-so-good reasons. And we want to put forth effort to learn more truth about God, but in order to know God and love God and honor God and love others. And then we thrive in the process. So a theologian with a hard head and a hard heart is a poor theologian indeed. So back to James. Who is wise and understanding among you? Then let him show it by his good life, by deeds done, and the humility that come from wisdom. So wisdom and understanding can be seen. It doesn't hide in the brain. It doesn't just merely come from the mouth, it shows up in a life. A life that's good, empowered by humility. Now, why is humility such a critical part of this? Because humility is wisdom. Pride is stupid, and pride makes us stupid. When we're proud, we think life is about us, and we live in foolish ways. Humility leads to a life seeking to love God and others, and this is in line with our design. It's in line with reality. 
So knowledge and the discipline to acquire knowledge can be a good thing if they're components of a good life, but if it's knowledge to exalt self, then it's less than worthless, even biblical knowledge. Humility was not highly valued when James wrote this letter. In the general culture, it was thought to be a sign of a weak and servile person, not a strong and confident person. So when Jesus shows up, the true king humbled himself to become a servant. He said the meek are blessed. It was confusing to people. So meekness or humility comes from understanding who we are in relationship to God, and then humility towards God is going to show up in how we relate to others. Humility is sanity. Pride is insanity. Insanity as in living outside of reality. So look at the person who's so proud of their physical body. I saw the, the, the NFL All-Pro team pop up, and I was thinking about NFL All-Pro team of 1970 when I was in middle school. They're either dead or they're all completely broke down. And now these guys are impressive. So they can throw a ball. Someone can pick up some steel. They can run fast around the track. But now, wait a minute, just a short minute, look at their body. It's been taken down by a very small germ, a microscopic cancer cell, or some injury to our very weak and vulnerable bodies. We're so impressed with physical attributes. Look at that person proud of their power and position. It's impressive. But now wait a minute, look at them. Nobody talks about them. Nobody knows them. I'm reading a book on military leaders in the past, and, and, I'm, and I'm, some of them I'm having to Google. Who, now who is that guy? He was in charge of all these thousands of soldiers. Several years ago, there was a four-star at, at a major Air Force command who pulled up in his staff car with his driver, went into the change of command ceremony, handed off the, the guide on to his new his replacement. He went out and he was waiting, and a young airman walked up and said, can I help you, sir? He said, well, I'm waiting for my staff car. And the reply was, well, sir, it took the general. It took the commander. It was, it's not your car anymore. He didn't say it like that. He said, can I get you a ride? But he comes in a staff car, and he leaves, and now he's not the guy anymore. It all happened like that. Look at that really smart person. They know so much about so little, but now look at them. They're all alone. They're confused about important things like relationships and joy. They were so smart in their field, but they're empty in their life. And my point is, humility is sanity because we are humble beings. We are weak, we are needy, we are temporary, and pride is crazy. And pride leads to crazy life choices. And true humility brings wisdom, that brings peace between people. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it. Don't deny the truth because that wisdom, and it's in quotation marks, doesn't come from heaven. It's earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. So bitter envy is a desire to possess things that are not yours and to be unhappy you don't have them. That's the bitter part. It's a life-sucking attitude. Selfish ambition is what Paul said we're not to act out of in Philippians 2. Now, why would James say if you do these things, you should not boast about it? I mean, who would boast about it? Well, a lot of people do. Just pay attention. It's common to embrace and boast about being self-centered. But this wisdom, James writes, using the term ironically, is not from heaven, it's not from God, it's earthly, and it's a word that's just the opposite of heaven. It could literally be earthbound. It's a narrow perspective that fails to consider the reality of God, so it's looking at life through a straw. It's unspiritual, not of God. This describes a person whose feelings and reason reign supreme. Again, they don't consider the reality of God as they move through life. And in demonic, this is just as far from God wisdom as you can get. Because 
where you have these things, there you find disorder in every evil practice. It shows up. Wisdom from God is seen in the life. This false wisdom is also seen in the life and the impact on other people. There's cause and effect for both wisdom and folly. The earthbound, unspiritual, demonic nature of this false wisdom is seen in the effects on relationships in the church. This wisdom that's of the world, the flesh, and the devil breeds disorder in every evil practice. And so when people are seeking their own selfish desires rather than the good of others, disorder rules. So we have what wisdom is not. Now we see what wisdom from God is, or more accurately, what real wisdom does. It shows up out here in relationships. If there's real wisdom in here, it shows up out here in how we respond to one another. He started the passage with who's wise and understanding and let them show up by the way they live their life. So wisdom produces, first of all, or foundationally, purity. This is a foundational quality of wisdom. And the things that follow are derivatives of a pure life. So by purity, it doesn't just mean sexuality. When we think of pure, we often think of sexuality. But this is purity as in wholeness, pure gold, pure chocolate, pure godliness. It's the opposite of what he's been talking about when he talks about double-minded. So the person who's more and more fully given over to God, this is pure. So purity or wholeness is the foundation for wisdom. And then he gives seven words that describe what this looks like in practice. And then his letter, he's grouped them into three groups, three, two, and two. So the first three words start with the same letter and have the same ending in the Greek. Peace-loving, considerate, submissive. This is evidence of spiritual wholeness. These are the opposites of envy and selfish ambition. So peace between us starts with peace inside of us. And some people are so conflicted in here that they get nervous when there's no conflict out here. And so they create dissension. They bring disorder because of the disorder inside of them. Consider it just means considering or thinking about others. When we're considering others, we're not moving through life just thinking about self. Submissive is better translated as open to reason or able to be influenced. So we could summarize, wisdom is not hard-headed, wisdom is not hard-hearted. Well, a fool has a hard head and a hard heart to match. Open to reason doesn't mean you're without conviction or easily swayed by the opinions of others. The wise person can be wrong. Life is about God and others and truth is precious, so they can be wrong. The fool cannot afford to be wrong. Life is about them and truth can be a threat. And so if you go back to Acts, then you see James demonstrating this mixture of conviction and flexibility when he was leading that heated conference in Jerusalem. So he held to the absolute truth of the gospel. Don't add barriers to people coming to Christ. The gospel is the gospel, period. But he wasn't hard-headed. He was open to reason. But make sure in these matters of secondary importance, they don't really matter, but people shouldn't unnecessarily cause offense. So James had firm convictions, but a willingness to hear others. That's wisdom. And if you see someone with a joyful, fixed foundation for their life and a joyful and open mind, you see a beautiful thing. So someone who says, I've decided Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, as we just sang about. No one comes to God apart from him. The Bible is true. It's been proven historically, personally, practically, grammatically, theologically, every way. They've decided. They're not living deciding. They're decided. No one's going to come up with a new idea, new discovery that suddenly undermines the gospel and scripture. It's a done deal. The foundation's fixed. Building my life on that. And because... We have confidence in our core convictions. We don't have to be right about everything. 
Wisdom means I hold to my core convictions absolutely, and that I can be open to correction and input from others on things that aren't the absolute truth of God. So we want to be joyfully convinced and joyfully correctable people. And you contrast that with the common image of the sour, unhappy person who's convinced they're right about everything, no matter what it is. They can't afford to be wrong. Or the nervous person flittering from one new idea to the next, no foundation for their life. So wisdom is built on the foundation of the truth of the gospel, and there's joy and security there. Wisdom is humble and able to hear others and be corrected. In fact, Proverbs says the wise person literally rejoices in correction. I haven't gotten there yet, but they rejoice in correction. They've learned to love it. They don't want to maintain their pride at the cost of what's true and real. The second group of virtues are set off by full of, full of mercy and good fruit. And Jesus frequently mentioned fruit, good fruit, in his teachings as an indicator of a godly person. And he loved the analogy of bearing good fruit, good fruit of mercy. So James couples mercy with good fruit. Mercy is love for others. It shows up in actions towards others. And so this wisdom from heaven is going to bear this kind of fruit, mercy, love and practical action. Now, one thing that you find in smart people who were not good people historically is they were void of mercy. They didn't treat other people well. Over and over, people who talked about Bernie Madoff say he was void of mercy. He was void of compassion for others. He was called a financial serial killer, a sociopath. He, had the, he lacked the capacity for mercy. He was behind the greatest Ponzi scheme, money fraud in history. He ruined many lives. He went from being called the genius wizard of Wall Street to the monster of Wall Street. He was thought to be brilliant by everyone who knew him, but he was not, and he was certainly not good. His own sons, both of whom died, one by suicide, disowned him. And he died in prison alone, and his ashes sit on a lawyer's shelf because no one wants him. This is a guy that everybody in the world, kings and wealthy people, wanted to be in his presence. So true wisdom is full of mercy and good fruit, and others around you thrive because you're wise. But when true wisdom is absent, no one thrives. But as with Madoff and many like him, folly and wisdom take time to reveal their fruit, but reveal it they will. And the final group of two traits, again, start with the same letter and the end of the same letter in the same ending in the Greek. It's impartial and sincere. And impartial makes sense. Remember how James wrote about showing no partiality, treating all people the same, whether rich or poor, earlier in his letter. Sincere means to not play act, to be for real. So impartial and sincere are coupled together because wisdom puts on no show for others. You can count on this person to be the same person, whoever they're with, all the time. There's no hollow core. There's no trap doors. There's no trying to please or impress. What you see is what you get. They want to bless not to impress others. And then as a capstone of this passage of contrasting these two wisdom, one's a fraudulent wisdom, one's a real wisdom, he concludes like this, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. And this is James's true concern in all this. Not individual growth, not personal spiritual development. He's concerned about what individual wisdom brings to the community or lack of wisdom inside of us brings to the church. We tend to read the Bible, move through life, thinking mostly as individuals, which is not wrong, but it's incomplete. We are connected to others. If we read James as sort of a self-improvement manual, we're going to miss his point. 
His main focus is we, not just me. He's writing as a pastor to a church. If you read the Bible from a me, not a we perspective, you're going to misread it. The Bible, the body of Christ is the kingdom of God manifest in the world. The world will know we belong to Jesus as we love one another. Love for God shows up in practical love for others. So the idea, what you, is not uncommon now, kind of unchurched Christians wandering the earth trying to pursue individual spiritual growth would be unthinkable to James. It'd be unthinkable to every New Testament writer. Godly wisdom is always faith practiced in local community. So when I live as a connected part of a local body and as I grow personally in wisdom, I'm, I'm going to be part of growing peace in the body and a harvest of righteousness around me. We are profoundly spiritual beings. We are profoundly social beings. This is beyond dispute. God made us for community. So you can say, well, if James is so concerned with peace and local community, why do you spend so much time on wisdom and self-reflection? Because both drama and peace above ground are the shoots. They're the growth of the plants. The things happening below ground are the roots. So when he talks about Bad things happening, the shoots, there's roots underground. When there's good things happening, there's roots underground. The next verse, which we'll get to next week, James asked another penetrating question. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? They come from the desires that battle within you. And so the shoots above ground come from the roots below ground. Let's, let's move to some application. Everyone should seek wisdom. We should all want wisdom. And we all do. James 1, verse 5, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. But we tend to think of wisdom as getting data. We use that data to make good decisions or avoid making bad decisions. We see wisdom as knowing the will of God for our lives. I, oh, God, I need wisdom on this job, on, my, on this relationship, on this purchase. We see wisdom mainly as sort of almighty intel. And none of that's bad, and wisdom certainly has those components to it. But when James says in the first chapter, if you lack wisdom, you should ask God for it, then, then in a very short book, when he starts defining wisdom, what it is, we should pay attention. We, maybe we should reorient what we think wisdom is to what he says wisdom is. Wisdom is not merely the ability to make a good decision. What do I do here? Wisdom is the ability, James says, to live a good life. Who am I to become? To know God's will and ways in regard, how do I live life and love others? And of course, that involves decisions, but it's much more than that. When people live together in wisdom, they live together in peace. If peace is absent, wisdom is absent. So when James asks if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God for it. He's not saying we should merely ask God for information and decision-making. That's where we go in our minds. We're asking God for transformation. If we lack wisdom, which we all do, and we ask God for it, we're asking God to make us more like Christ. So we, we cry out, oh God, please give me wisdom, James 1.5. Looking at our time in James so far, what would James say that would look like? It would look like God says, okay, you want wisdom? Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kind, and then you'll grow in wisdom. Be, be content in your current situation and you'll grow in wisdom. Embrace that person as your equal. Treat them as more important than yourself. You'll become wise. Put away arrogance. Have a soft heart. Don't be a hard head. Bring peace in your church. Then you'll grow in wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show up by their good life, by deeds done, and humility that comes from wisdom. 
People can be impressed, briefly at least, by mere human wisdom, and people often are. We now have this great capacity to have these brief moments of, of human wisdom, Twitter. But people are blessed by heaven's wisdom, and you really do want your life to bless, not to impress, because blessing others leaves them and us more full. Seeking to merely impress only makes us feel emptier. And it does not draw people into the beauty of God. I said last week as we talked about the tongue, by all means, speak your mind if you're growing the mind of Christ. And by all means, seek to be impressive, but to God. And what's he impressed with? Faithfulness, faith, kindness, sacrifice, love. James Cameron said, anybody can be a father or a husband. There are only five people in the world who can do what I do. I'm going for that. No, James, anyone in the world can live for themselves. Anyone can make life about themselves. That way of life is not unusual. It is boringly common. What's unusual is a life lived for the good of others and the glory of God, which, by the way, being a good father and husband, if that's who you're called to be, would go at the top of the list. So go for a good life. Go for deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. Let's pray together. Talk to God about your life. Listen to God as he speaks to you. And then we're going to worship him together.